Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Carrie Johnson. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Joining us by phone today is Vice President and Group Director, Melissa Parrish, to discuss the current disconnect between marketers and customers and how marketers can work to fix it. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So best intentions aside, you're asserting in this research that current marketing practices or tactics are essentially turning customers against brands. So what exactly do we mean by that? So I think the best place to start when we explore this topic is to sort of go back a few years where data-driven marketing kind of popped up and, and brands were all excited about the ability to get to know their customers better. This sounded really great because if you follow this line of thinking, it goes something like you can collect better data about your customers and prospects, which means that you can deliver relevant marketing messages to customers, which will annoy them less because they're not getting uh, totally irrelevant messages. And it's a great thing for marketers, too, because they're eliminating waste from the system. So it seems like a win-win. Great. So marketers start implementing technology and strategies to get all of this information about people. And they get really good at it. And then customers realize that this is happening. And the unforeseen circumstance uh, for most marketers is that people said, whoa, this is, this is weird. This is creepy. I was not expecting this. Why does this brand know that I'm interested in this product? How does this platform know to reach out to me about this thing? Um, and the level of savvy about their personal data increased, uh, I would argue, exponentially as some of the bigger scandals started to happen, right? So you have the uh, data breaches that keep happening, uh, whether you're a retailer or um, a credit bureau or what have you, there are these big, uh, really scary data breaches. Then there are less scary things, but still get to the heart of of how people feel about their personal identity, uh, like all of the social media scandals and data that proliferates there. And so while marketers were on this trajectory of, hey, this is the best of both worlds. It's a win-win situation. We're going to keep getting better information. We're going to target better. We're going to eliminate irrelevant marketing messages, and we're going to automate it all. Consumers were saying, yeah, no, I don't want personalized experiences. I don't want you to have my data. I want to get to say what data, what brands get. And by the way, your automation uh, is super creepy, and you need some human oversight. I'm going to massively oversimplify, and please correct me because I think that I'm wrong. But in looking at the research and even the explosion of MarTech over the last five years, I want to point the finger at technology. Obviously, the humans had to implement that technology, but it feels like there was an exuberance about around what technology could do in this space. I mean, look at all those like crazy graphics of vendors in the MarTech space, and it went like completely amok. Is that way too simple? It isn't too simple. I mostly agree with that, <laughs> mostly, <laughs> um, because I, I think the human element there is still really important. B- because you you have to introduce the 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 
the idea of just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? right? Like the, the technology platforms are incredible. There are some MarTech solutions out there, um, and you can see them in the waves that we we publish. That I mean, you really could set it and forget it, right? They could ingest all sorts of data from all over the place. They could spit out uh, segments and personas. They could use their machine learning and light AI to customize messages and optimize in real time and do all these amazing things. Um, and it would save the marketer a ton of money. And therefore, they would argue they were successful. Done. Um, and some marketers have gone that route. And, and that's where you start to get into some really uncomfortable things, things where human beings were needed to adjust the business rules that were programmed into the MarTech systems. So I, I think you're right, Carrie, that like there was a, this like love of what the technology could do, this uh, exuberance was your word. I love that. Like, like, yeah, wow, look at this. This can change everything. And we, we let the cat out of the bag uh, and we forgot to try to bring it back home. So kind of going down this talk around the human or the marketer and their control of the situation or not, is there general recognition by marketers today that they're actually not very customer-centric in their tactics and in in their strategies? <laughs> Unfortunately not. Uh, and again, I think it is a, it's a point of view problem. Mm-hmm. If I'm a marketer and I'm feeling like I'm getting to know my customers really well, largely through collecting data on them, I'm going to call that customer obsession. Right. 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 But the customer doesn't feel it because the customer is like, no, you're supposed to be paying attention to what I want. And you're not doing that. You're just collecting a bunch of data points in, in databases. Um, in fact, we, when we ask marketers, uh, if they consider themselves mature uh, in customer-obsessed marketing, about three-quarters of them say, yes, we're totally mature. We got this. Um, you know, no problem. Uh, but when we run our own assessment um, against what we at Forrester uh, believe that means, what are the things you have to do to actually be customer-obsessed? Almost the same amount, 68% are actually only in the beginner stage. So it's just, it is, it is a, a wild misconnect between what being customer obsessed actually is versus what marketers think they can do um, to call themselves customer obsessed. Are they getting mixed signals, do you think? I mean, I look at the rise of D2C brands, right, who I presume are employing a lot of these tactics from a targeting perspective, and they're growing like wildfire. So there may be some creepiness, there may be some annoyance, but are they turning customers off wholesale or are they getting rewarded for some of those tactics? So it's interesting that you mentioned the DTC brands because one of the things that we have tracked in our DTC research is that they do use a lot of these tactics, plus there's a a huge overlay of of influencer strategy for some Mm -hmm. of these, especially digitally native brands. Um, They do use these tactics at launch and in sort of early stages. Um, but they do it in a, in a very geographically contained way, usually. So many of these DTC startups that you think of um, started in San Francisco or New York. Uh, and yes, sure, the headquarters are there and the founders live there and whatever. But really, if you think about it, there's a big enough population that you don't have to do any major, massive data aggregation. You can lightly target people who live in your area. 
um, and then overlay with, uh, you know, the millennial generation and people who want to, um, who prioritize convenience over comfort and, all, you know, all that sort of stuff, their shopping habits. So they do use some of these uh, data-focused uh, tactics and strategies, but in a contained way, and only until they hit a certain level of success, at which point you start to see you know, uh, Warby Parker and um, Untuck It and others set up retail locations. You start to see commercials, television commercials for Third Love. Um, you see um, other sorts of, uh, of brands. I'm thinking of all of the mattresses, the mattress in a box brands <laughs> that now do. They do print, they do TV, they do radio, they do podcasts, they do digital, they do they do everything, right? So, so they had some early success using this these data driven strategies in a contained way, but they end up going more old school mass marketing, less targeted, less data driven as they as they try to grow. How much of this is due to the pressures to scale? And to expand and to use the tools that you have or the content that you have in attempts to maybe personalize it, but to many, many prospects and customers. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's about the imperative to scale efficiently because, uh, you know, my colleagues on the B2C marketing team, especially uh, Jim Nail, would argue that uh, if the if the goal is just to scale, then buy television, right? Like that's, right. Yeah. Go, that's what you do. Kind of go old that's, school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, TV. You can knock it or or point to all of the uh, fancy addressable television uh, efforts and whatnot. TV is still the mass market. It is still where where you can reach the largest audience all at once. So if scale was the only thing that was sort of driving this, you would just sort of go back to those to those tactics. But what's really driving this is that brands want to scale efficiently, eliminate waste, and be able to directly measure their marketing efforts. And that means digital. It means uh, being able to uh, measure every single step along the customer journey, every single step in the customer lifecycle, every marketing activity that happens across that, and then attribute sales and dollars and retention and loyalty to each of those steps. And that means data. So that is, again, how we sort of get into this, oh, no, but isn't it great for both sides because because we are reaching the people who really want us to reach them? Uh, and that, I think, is the faulty reasoning. But do you think that's really possible to go away in terms of, like, there's still pressure to show return on investment and um you know, grow share of wallet and all of these things like that's I don't see that going away for marketers anytime soon. No, nor should it. Right. That's we would never say you should start measuring stuff that has, you know, nothing to do with uh, with the bottom line. That's really important. But I think um, what marketers really need to consider is a few things. First of all, when you're collecting all this data about customers, they are also telling you what they are uncomfortable with. And this is the part that marketers just sort of ignore, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if 70% of my customers are cool with what I'm doing, um, great. 
that's plenty. And they ignore the 30% or whatever who, who aren't happy about it um, because it just seems so small. And I've seen brands where the proportion is actually much heavier weighted towards customers that like what they're doing or who are comfortable with their tactics, 90% to 10%, for example. But the thing is, it costs marketers nothing to pay attention to the other group because the other group is actually is just sort of asking to opt out of the targeting, um, and it does not require any special technology or strategy or skills or humans or you know new positions and new titles in your organization to accomplish that. It just means that like when you are creating segments, there is a segment that you create for people who don't want you to personalize stuff to them. Like a do not call list. This could be fine. Exactly. Yes, it's exactly like that. Um, What I found really fascinating in this research is that we asked dozens of brands if they did this. None of them did. We asked dozens of brands if they considered this. None of them had. We asked our colleagues um, on the Business Insights team who regularly talk to data scientists and business intelligence people uh, inside of organizations, hey, do you know of anybody who is taking uh, non-personalization as seriously as personalization? And we could think of no one um, with maybe the exception of a brand like Trader Joe's which makes part of its brand the the idea that they simply do not personalize marketing. They do not use data in any way, which is an extreme case and not something that's right for most brands. But it's just so interesting that something that really does not take much effort at all is like not even discussed. It's not even on anybody's minds. So that is... That's sort of the, I would say, the entry level to making sure that, like, you're still measuring all the right stuff. Let's just make sure we're not ignoring all the people who you're you're angering with your strategies. But it's such an important point because it is the assumption that regardless of who you are, a prospect or a customer coming to the website, that you have the expectation of it being this highly personalized experience. And I think that is an assumption for many marketers as a marketer, that's sort of like, Oh, we, you have to do all of these things to make sure that you're catering to the visitor. But it's likely that someone who's visiting your website for the first time has no expectation that you know them. There's a, there's a marketing myth that's been going on for years called, and it sounds something like customers demand personalized experiences. Right. <laughs> yep. Um, which also reminds me of the famous like content wants to be free myth, right? Which is who's ever saying that generally has a little bit of a bias. Like mm-hmm. they demand personalized experiences. So um, that's our justification for completely creepy marketing targeting. Yes, exactly. And for some customers the and prospects, the most personalized approach you can take is to not personalize. Mm-hmm. Right. right. You are showing that you know them by not personalizing the experience. But yeah, it, it is true that if you are if you are a brand new prospect, you are at the very beginning of the discover stage of the customer life cycle, you might not want this brand to know anything about you at all. There's also this, this strange corollary that kept coming up a lot in our research, um, and it's very specific to different types of companies and organizations where... Sometimes what you offer is so personal 
that you actually shouldn't even be doing targeted prospect marketing, regardless of who the the individual targets are. Um, One example that kept coming up is uh, there is a uh, a clinic uh, in the Midwest that focuses on very particular types of cancer, and they are the various cancers that affect men and like the whole set. I'm not intentionally not naming them. It's just all of them. Uh, And we know anybody who has researched this sort of condition and treatments knows that one of the biggest problems is the stigma about admitting you have these kinds of cancers. And so it's a very personal, very intimate sort of experience to seek out help seek out um, different doctors, seek out support groups and things like that. And there, this clinic was doing targeted advertising just sort of across the web, like figuring out based on people's browsing habits that this might be a condition that they have and then targeting them with ads, which is a perfectly normal thing to do if you are a retailer and you're having a sale on pants and somebody is searching for pants, sure, serve them all the ads you want about the sale you have on pants. But imagine being someone with this condition that you feel that is dangerous, it is life-threatening, you are struggling with it, you are trying to find um, paths through this thing that just happened in your life and something that you have not sought out goes, hey, we, we, know, we know you have this. Somehow we figured this out. Here's this ad. That is not just creepy. That is like an emotionally rending experience. Um, and again, that's an extreme experience. It, it, it's applicable to only a, a small group of brands and depending on, on what you offer. But it's something to be considered um, even in, in smaller ways for all brands, I think. I wish you could see our faces. It's not, it's not particularly pretty. Um, I know. But to be more productive, I would say that starts to bring up um, questions for me around maybe an update on something like ad blocking and if customers are still taking advantage of those kinds of technologies. And also, what happened to personal data management? And why don't we see more control getting in the hands of customers of what companies can use and what they can't use? I mean, I feel like we... We, of course, have identified this trend many times, have identified the need for it, and it doesn't feel like it's caught on and that customers are still letting having to let this happen to them versus being in control of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there to unpack. Ad blockers are increasing in, um, in usage. They have been increasing every year. I think it depends on, on um, the kind of data that we look at. Um, so is do you intend to block ads do you do you intend to use technology um, to limit the kinds of um, data that marketers can see about you or ads I mean that that we can see sometimes skyrocket into three quarters of people um, actual installation of ad blockers um, you know what I don't know the the number off the top of my head for, from 2019 um, but I know that it has been increasing steadily so some people are getting used to the idea of ad blockers and of course ad blockers are built in as a general rule to certain browsers. So that is becoming a little bit more prevalent. However, ad blockers are, um, they're not the answer necessarily because, um, you know, the publishers make arrangements to whitelist certain kinds of of, uh, brands based on certain kinds of marketing partnerships. 
So, you know, there are, there are ways that the ecosystem gets around ad blockers anyway. But I think the question of, like, personal identity management and, and that kind of thing that um, uh, our colleague Fatima and others have written about a lot, uh, I think it will get there. There are technologies that consumers could use now to take back a lot more of this control. The problem is that they are not mainstream. Most people don't know about them. And they're a little bit weighty. They're a bit, a little bit labor intensive. What exactly do I do with this? What, what is the outcome I'm expecting? Um, I think there's a lot of room for growth there, and I think we're going to continue to see it. But I think one thing to, to look at in terms of the, uh, uh, the slower pace of adoption of those sorts of technologies is, is something as simple as like Facebook's preferences. It is crazy <laughs> to, to go into your account settings on something like Facebook. And because they have tried to respond to some degree to some of the concerns around uh, privacy and targeting and all of that, there are now, I mean, how many different settings do you have to look at? And what does this mean versus what does that mean? If I turn that off, does this turn on? What happens if I do this universal setting versus that one? It's like, it's, it's I mean, it's a little bit maddening. So there's a question of granularity as well. What level of control do customers think they want? What level of control will people actually exercise? Um, and I'm not sure we know where the intersection of those two things uh, actually is yet. Yeah, and that makes sense. And I feel like even just the onus on the consumer to manage all of that data and understand, to your point, like how it will be used and what permission you're giving to whom is just, it's a, the onus, but it's onerous. Like it's just so much work. Like tax law. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It the, is. You know, the layman being able to understand that is far away. So, Melissa, I think one of the other things that we should maybe hit on is this notion of, okay, obviously a lot of investment on tech. So what has that done to creative and creativity um, and sort of this notion? We've talked about digital sameness on the podcast before. It's been in our research. It feels like that is a very real thing today. Um, so is that also sort of tied to this work? Yeah, I mean, we, we have definitely looked at the sort of correlation. I, I don't want to, I don't want to claim causation here, right. but the correlation between brands that are investing in, uh, like crazy in MarTech, increasing their investment in MarTech even, um, to very substantial degrees while at the same time reducing what they are spending uh, on creative. And again, this is just the, the costs. When you start to talk about creative, it, it gets a little kludgy, right? Mm -hmm. Because, because the, the money is an indicator, but once you start, um, putting money somewhere else, it really is saying that you are deprioritizing something like creative, um, which is a really risky strategy. Um, especially when, uh, every brand is good at digital, right? Like there was a moment where, mm. uh, you know, in the history of marketing where if you were just good at digital, it didn't matter how crappy your creative was because you were so much further ahead. That is just not the case anymore. Um, we can talk about brand differentiation and brand experiences and all this sort of stuff. And as you mentioned, sort of um, sameness. Uh, but really what it comes down to is this idea that like there's this whole um, – uh, class of marketers, if you will, who came of age at a particular time for whom technology is the priority and creative is something that they've maybe not even um, 
had to participate in, uh, and that has led to a real imbalance. Um, and I think I, I think it's two brands. Um, they are doing themselves a, a, a real disservice by thinking that automation uh, is the answer and that they can deprioritize creativity. You know, technology, automation, all this stuff is amazing, but it's additive. Uh, you still need some some classic marketing chops here. You still need to be able to say what your brand is um, and, and show it in ways that captures not just the attention, but the emotion uh, of your audience. So as we look forward, maybe you can step us through, okay, now that we've maybe recognized that this is an issue, um, even though we know that many marketers still think of themselves as customer obsessed, what should they be looking at as they, uh, you know, approach the new year and are thinking about potentially operating differently, changing mindset, and so on? Yeah. So here's where uh, where I'm going to say something that we don't often get to say at Forrester, which is that in order to start fixing this problem. We are not talking about putting huge buckets of investment in new technologies. <laughs> we are not talking about, um, you know, taking your entire marketing team on a retreat in the woods for a week and, like, interrogating everything you've ever known about the universe. Um, that isn't it. What we are saying, though, is that in nearly every brand – there is a set of marketing fundamentals, assumptions that were made usually long ago, um, but sometimes in the last five or 10 years that have just been allowed to persist. They have seemed like they have seemed so true that they have become true isms, right? Nobody bothers to ask whether these things are still true. And these are the things we need to look at now. So we need to start asking some questions um, that we have not asked ourselves in a really long time. So, for example, the most basic one that we have already talked about uh, on this podcast. Are you treating customers and prospects differently, or are you treating them like the same audience? Because they are not the same. Prospects have different expectations than your customers. It is such a basic thing, but because we are able to know so much about our non-customers, we have stopped treating them like non-customers, and we really need to get back to that. Similarly, something that I think is, is really challenging is that, again, because of the proliferation of data, we feel like we can know everybody so well um, that like suddenly the entire world is an addressable market. No, it isn't. <laughs> it never has been. It never will be. You got to define and stick to the addressable market. So are you a brand that has allowed like the tentacles of the of the customers you're trying to reach, the the uh, concept of who your audience is, have you allowed that to sort of bleed into like everybody in the world? If so, let's bring it back, right? Let's bring it back um, so that we know who we're actually trying to reach. It's these sorts of things, right? It extends into um, into digital advertising. There are a lot of uh, I like to call myths about digital advertising uh, that have just grown up around the programmatic ecosystem, right? Like, like it is either digital or traditional. Not the case anymore, certainly. You want to be where your audience is, and that probably means TV and digital. It probably means some combination of uh, contextual targeting with audience targeting. 
It's, it isn't just one or the other. Uh, and it definitely means um, putting creative back into your brand experience, right? Like programmatic um, was so successful in so many ways. The automation, we sort of, we, that is one of the reasons that we started to deprioritize creative. And as we already talked about, we have to sort of rebalance that expectation. And then I would say the last two things are um, about understanding your customer uh, to the extent that you know the customers who don't want you to know them, uh, which sounds so very, I don't know, philosophy major of me, but but it is there's something real there. There are a subset, there is a subset of your customers for whom, as we said, the most personal approach is to not personalize. So learn who they are and then do that. And then it's and then it's about measuring success. So we already talked about the importance of like nobody's going to tell you as marketers to not pay attention to ROI. But let's talk about balancing the um, the idea of customer experience or customer satisfaction with company revenue. Let's talk about looking at value from the customer's point of view rather than thinking only about the kind of value that each customer gives the brand. Um, it really is a fundamental mind shift, turning towards the customer in a way that is much more concrete and real than putting up a diagram with like a, a, the head of a persona in the middle right, of your marketing activities. This is really figuring out um, the value you give to your customers and making sure that that's aligned with your brand experiences. As you've talked about getting to know customers and truly understanding motivation, it seems as though there is a function in organizations that already do this today, does this today, and that is the customer experience function. Um, are you implying marketers should become CX folks, CX folks should become marketers, or they should merge? So I'm, I'm suggesting that whether it is marketers become CX pros, CX pros become marketers or the two merge, I'm, I'm suggesting that this divide, this highly siloed approach is, is absurd and to everyone's detriment because, you know, m customer experience pros tend to think that marketers only care about the bottom line, which is often true and can lead to some really terrible experiences as we've, discuss as we've discussed. Marketers sometimes think that CX pros are only caring about, you know, um, hugging the customers and making them feel really good and not thinking at all about the bottom line, which is sometimes mm -hmm. true. But if you look at what each side of that equation has to offer, you've got marketers who understand the technology, the tactics, the strategies of being able to get customers to buy the products that let your brand exist and therefore give you a job. And you have CX pros who understand the motivations that help customers come into that marketing experience in the first place. They understand how to deliver on the brand experiences that marketing is trying to put out there. Um, so the, the people in your organization that are uh, best poised to help CX be effective in their plans are marketers and vice versa. The people in your organization that are best poised to help marketers be successful are CX pros. So to me, this division, it, it's just illogical. Uh, and I, I just wish that uh, rather than sort of hand-wringing about like, 
oh, but my department reports up to this person and my department reports, reports up to that person. Like, can we just figure this out? Because if the two sides can come together, that's where the customer is really prioritized. The value that you're giving to the customer is what becomes the guiding principle of the company. And you're still making money. And isn't that really what every brand wants? Can't we all just get along and exactly <laughs> and make money at the same time? Yes. So obviously you're asserting that the divide can be bridged, right? So what are you thinking in terms of like, what are the signals that we'll see in the future that that divide is, is getting closed? So to me, it all comes back to, uh, this is, this is one area that really does all come back to budget. And what I mean by that is if you take a look at CX budgets, um, there's a very wide range. Um, the majority, the last time uh, we, we did this study, the majority of CX pros uh, said they commanded a budget of, you know, single-digit millions of dollars, like a million dollars. But we know from working with brands that there are some uh, that have projects that are in the hundreds of millions of dollars. What we don't yet see on a regular basis um, uh, is a trend towards CX departments um, having steady budget in that middle range. Middle range meaning anything from like a million to hundreds of millions of dollars. A huge range, right? But we're not really seeing, um, seeing that sort of budget stabilization. On the marketing side, budgets have been pretty stable at big brands forever. It is routine to have hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising alone. Um, so what I mean by the budget movement will be a signal is that if these two sides can come together, the CX professionals will help marketers more efficiently and effectively use all those dollars. And um, marketers will be able to shift some of those dollars into the CX programs that are not currently funded. Um, once we start to see the money flowing through those teams, I think you start to see some uh, shared successes. Uh, and that's what I think starts to accelerate the, um, the collaboration. Thanks for joining us today, Melissa. Thank you very much. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.